Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us for us. So get hyped for your co-hosts. Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch, myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo. Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome everyone to the Gen Activist Podcast. We're really, really excited to be here today kicking off Women's History Month. And as always, we we are going to be amplifying women of color. Um, we know a lot of times these historic events or these holidays, you know, kind of leave us out. And so we certainly want to be sure that we're focusing on women of color. And so we're really, really excited to have our guest here with us today, Rachel Ricketts, who Virginia is going to introduce. Awesome. Well, welcome to Gen Activist. We're so excited to have one of our first guests be Rachel Ricketts, who um, I had the pleasure of meeting. Feels like an eternity ago at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But was actually only two years ago at South by Southwest and was immediately just touched by her voice, um, both the beautiful combination of her tenderness and the ways in which she invites people into this work, but also um, her boldness in challenging people into this work. So really excited to have her here today. And just for our listeners, we wanted to just give you a bird's eye view of, um, of a little bit of who we've come to know as both peers and friends. But mm-hmm. Rachel Ricketts is a queer, multiracial Black woman. She's a global disruptor, healer, and author of the book, which we are so excited to talk about today, Do Better, Spiritual Activism for Fighting and Healing from White Supremacy. As a racial justice educator, spiritual activist, and thought leader, she supports all folks and ending global oppression in all forms. And she hosts online and in-person workshops. If you folks are not following her on Instagram, do yourself right. a favor. <laughs> go click that follow button right now so you can bring that type of um, incredible insight with humor, with uh, candidness that has been a breath <laughs> in our lives. She loves donuts, dancing, and disruption. Triple D, y'all know I'm alliteration. Love the alliteration, and so I'm definitely hyped about your love for donuts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Why that? Why are you hyped? (laughs) Um, And because I think it's an undervalued dessert, an undervalued. um, It is. Everyone gets the ice cream, the cookies, the cake, and people don't recognize the power of a good donut. And so I just I appreciated that. As Megan acknowledged earlier, we are celebrating Women's History Month, and I wanted to start us here. Um, Audre Lorde, who's one of our favorite, not just historic voices, because 
part of the impetus of this podcast is the power of intergenerational dialogue. And so mm. we believe we bring her spirit into this space as well. And one of my favorite quotes from her, she says, I am not free while any other woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And so I wanted to start off by just kind of recognizing that to kind of be the, the culminating power of your work, Rachel, right? Mm -hmm. That you're calling all women, all humans, and I love the way you spell humans throughout your book, into this work, right? Because our collective freedom is interdependent on and is a support of, right, our individual freedom. And so I wonder if you could start us off by just sharing a little bit more about you and how this work of spiritual activism came to be, why you find it so important that this isn't just about the X's and O's of the work of disruption and system and equity, but it's also about the inner work that brings us to this place. Yeah. Thank you for all of that. I'm never sure how to answer that question because this work like is my, is a part of me and is my life's purpose. And so I always say that the work started before I entered the earthly realm, like this work started with my ancestors. And it started before, started in my mom's womb, which, you know, and I started in my grandmother's womb and so on and so forth. So this work is really vital to me because I think it's the missing piece to the social justice, you know, anti-oppression realm. So much of what's out in the space is, is analytical. It's from the neck up. And that makes sense because that's the status quo. Like that's how we generally operate in our day to day. But I think for us to actually make the change that changes that are required for our collective liberation, right? And our collective liberation is contingent on the liberation and healing and well-being of those who have been made most marginalized, which is Black and Indigenous women and femmes. Then I think it requires us to take a long look inside and it requires us to understand that these systems of oppression are intergenerational, these systems of generation are ancestral trauma and that, you know, are very much alive and well today and will continue until we've done the inner work that's required to unlearn and relearn and reshift. And if we're not looking at this work um, from an internal lens, it's really easy for us to think that this work lives outside of us. To think that this work is just for white people or to think that this work is just for men or to think that this work doesn't impact us, it impacts everybody, right? Like racial justice is not for black people or all black indigenous and people of color. It's for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's for everybody. Of course, no one more than black indigenous and people of color, but white supremacy harms white people just like patriarchy harms men and masculine folks. So um, and all of these systems of oppression are interconnected. So we can't end one without ending all. And none of us can actually be free. None of us can be well. None of us can be liberated until we have dismantled all systems of oppression. And we're talking about systems that have been in place for hundreds of years, right? And I'm not saying anything new. I say this all the time. I'm not saying anything that my ancestors haven't said. I'm not saying anything that all of the of the activists and disruptors before me haven't said maybe i'm saying it in a slightly different way given the times that we're in right now but it's not new so literally been saying the same thing screaming shouting the same thing for hundreds of years and so if we could educate our way out of this we would be there and we're not yeah. so we have to go about this a different way and so to me it's a divinely feminine way it's a collaborative way it's a a way that's rooted in collective care and prioritizing those who have been made most oppressed and understanding that all of us 
all of us are involved in and perpetuate in these systems. Of course, how much and to what degree depends on the amount of power and privilege that we possess, but we all have some. And that none, none, of, none of this is going to change until all of us are doing our inner work so that we can collectively come together to make the changes that are required from a, a shifted inner state. I think one of the things that resonates, you know, you say this was in some ways, right, this intention and this purpose was created before you came into the earth realm. And I think about that just in terms of like the stories and the trauma that are passed down in our bloodlines, right? And that, you know, I think about my grandmother who's sitting right here and my grandfathers who have passed and my my grandmother and that this work is iterative, you know, like our, Mm -hmm. our generation is taking pieces of that of that legacy right and and begin and continuing to interrupt and disrupt in creative ways and i think part of what's really beautiful about what you created or shared through do better was articulating right that this is not new right mm-hmm. but that we are asking folks to come into this work with a different vantage point and with a different sort of tone to the ways to do and the ways in which they articulate this because we do another workshop, another educate, you know, the K through 12 system. We all know where the systems are fractured, right? We all know mm-hmm. where their pain points. Um, but perhaps this is the time, particularly in this space of a global pandemic, where we have literally the time to mm-hmm. sit the discomfort that some of this is around our, our own ideas, our own ideologies, right? And our own uh, perpetuation of certain inequities. Yeah, I think when I, in your book, you talked about how anti-Blackness is a public health crisis. And I Mm -hmm. I really love that framing because I don't think that lots of times people um, think about it. When I was working as a civil rights attorney doing kind of criminal justice reform, we would frame it that way too, right? Like criminal, our criminal legal system and the way that it operates is a public health crisis and the ways in which it uh, impacts all of us, but the ways that it can show up in ways for Black women um, in particular, that mm-hmm. other people just have the ability to maybe like turn off, right? So, you know, fragmented thoughts or disconnecting from your body, as you talk about in your mm-hmm. book, and then how that ripples throughout like all sorts of other things, right? So in the ways that we can interact with our children and we can be present in our homes and the ways in which we go out into the world and do jobs and come back. And so I found that part to be really, really profound in your book. And so I'd love if we could just talk a little bit about how, you know, anti-Blackness actually shows up as a real health consequence, particularly for Black and Indigenous folks. Yeah. Where do I begin? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's lots of stats that I get into in the book in a succinct way. One of them is that Black women the telomeres at the end of our chromosomes age seven and a half years faster than white women, right? And that is across class, education. So we know that Black women as a result of not only having to endure racism and white supremacy, but the additional impact of, and patriarchy, all women have to endure, but the the additional impact of that anti-Blackness, which I talk about in the book, fulsomely, we experience from all races, right? Like anti-Blackness is a global crisis that impacts and is seen and exhibited by every race, including Black folks. We are anti-Black as all hell (laughs) towards each other. That's our internalized oppression. Right. So so to be a woman, femme, femme femme-passing person who is particularly oppressed by 
patriarchy, heteropatriarchy, misogyny, and oppressed by white supremacy and racism and oppressed by anti-blackness means we are oppressed by everyone all the time. Mm -hmm. Everyone all the time. And we are, you know, Megan, as you mentioned, we are usually the pillars of our communities and we are as a, a offshoot of of enslavement, of our enslavement expected to be mules and mammies for everybody, for everybody, not just white folks, for our own communities as well. And the impact of that on us emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and of course, physically, we know it well, yeah. but no one else can really understand that experience unless we endure it. They endure it, you know, and I just, I talk about this a lot in the book and throughout my work, but you know, come, we're, we're now basically a year into this pandemic, the panty for most of us yeah. living in this region of the world. And 2020 was a year that was so profound for me in, in its illumination of the ways in which Black women and femmes are absolutely cast aside and uncared for. Mm -hmm. I have never experienced so many Black women and femmes, myself included, brought to the brink of a despair we barely survived. And we have been brought to the brink of, of despair throughout hundreds of years. We know it well, it lives in our bones, like our, our mothers and mothers, mothers and grand, you know what I mean? Like we, we know it, but this, all of the things we have to deal with on a daily basis. And then you add this global health crisis and th that turns into a black and indigenous genocide in the United States of America mm -hmm. and uprisings around anti-blackness and what we are expected to do through all of that and carry, you know, we're angry, but we're also supposedly strong. And so we can't, <laughs> we can't win. We can't win. And so we are demonized for the work we go out in the world and do. And I don't just mean like, you know, activism out on the streets. Activism. Mm -hmm. There's many forms of activism. You know, we are activism. We're activists in our family units. But we are demonized in that work and then all for even for doing that work. Uh, but also we're absolutely expected to do that work. That is work that is absolutely expected of us to do. And no one, I want to say no one, we, we rarely receive the care that we deserve and that is required for us to actually do that work and especially do that work sustainably. Right. So in 2020, I've never seen so many Black women and femmes truly want to end their own lives. That's where we get to. We are not, we are not super women. Like we are amazing, resilient, strong, phenomenal creatures to survive what we have to survive every day. We truly are, but to treat us as though we're not actually human and to treat us right. as superhuman is to do that. To treat us as though we're not actually human lets people off the hook to think that they don't actually owe us care and y'all owe us so much. Yeah. Care at the top, but y'all owe us so much, truly. Can you, I'm interested in the connections that you make with our ancestors. That's very, resonates very strongly with me. So can you help, you know, explain, articulate how this connection to our ancestors is also part of our healing? And if you could just give more on that, because I think that's a yeah. powerful concept. Because you articulate very well that we go on, but mm. we're wounded. We're wounded. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. However, what is this connection with our ancestry that is part of the healing? 
Yeah. Thank you for that. And that's, I love that question because it's also so important at the same time as I talk about all of the um, inherited epigenetic ancestral trauma that we inherit, that we undoubtedly have. And again, all of us have this. This is not a Black person phenomenon, but of course we're talking about it very specifically when we're talking about Black folks who've been enslaved and the repercussions of that for hundreds of years. But we also survived that. Those of us who are here, our ancestors survived it or we wouldn't be here. So how how did we survive that? And that to me, like that to me is the epitome of Black girl magic. When we talk about Black girl magic, like our ability to overcome our resilience. I have a workshop that I run called Radical Hope and it's rooted in this notion of resilience and reverie of like being able to envision a whole new world. And that's rooted in, in our ability to find joy. So I don't know if this is true. So back check this but someone told me that um, a barrel of laughs the phrase a barrel of laughs comes from times when we were enslaved and we weren't allowed to laugh we weren't allowed to be joyful right because that means we weren't working so we would be whipped and so we would laugh into a barrel to to muffle our laughter wow and i mean that breaks my heart in a million little pieces but we didn't stop laughing we just were smart enough to know we got find that barrel and laugh into that barrel. But you ain't going to stop us from laughing. You're not going to stop us from singing. You know, yeah. all of the songs that we created that have turned into, you know, there's, there's basically no musical, very little of the music that we listen to today is not rooted in those hymns, those songs that were created by our enslaved ancestors back then that helped us survive. We braided rice into hair so that we would have something when we when we made the voyage to get here like we are brilliant people our ability to find glimmers which is the opposite of triggers to find like the like smallest fragment including a like teeny grain of rice in a piece of in in hair and hold on to that to be able to overcome which is a choice right yeah. An incredibly hard one, given the circumstances that have been put towards our ancestors and continue to be put towards us. But that is also rooted in us. That is also in our bones. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me, but I want you to clarify so I make sure that I'm hearing all because I absolutely agree with the things you're saying. So I, I haven't had a chance to read your book fully. I just got it in the last couple of days, but I've read kind of the intro, et cetera. So, but you speak a lot uh, about spirituality. And I know that America has given much, I mean, Black people have given much to America. Yeah. But are you equating or in what ways do you see the strand of spirituality that our ancestors had mm. and the spirituality that you speak of now? And does it, is it altered? Is it, does it require something new? Or is it something that's sustained and just remains there? And when you talk about epigenetics and all of that, but there is a spiritual quality that many people diminish the value of. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a tremendous power in it, obviously. So the spirituality of our ancestors and the spirituality that you call for now, can you just kind of make that connection? Yes, thank you for that, because that is, for me, the root of spiritual activism. So when I'm talking about spiritual activism, I'm talking about secular spirituality in terms of what we understand spirituality to be in our modern times. Uh, to me, there really isn't anything more spiritual than nature, than the, than the rhythms of nature being in tune with nature, which we are a part of, right? And we've lost all of that. 
But our ancestors were in tune with and aligned that many cultures around the world remain to be in tuned and aligned. And all, you know, the, the, the modern day Gregorian calendar, which is alive, created by a white man, and a lot of the holidays that religious organized faiths practice under the Christian sect were, you know, stolen, shifted, and transformed from indigenous holidays that were rooted in cyclical understanding in nature, in moon cycles. I'm researching moon and moon cycles right now. And it's just so fascinating and so resonant for me in my body. And I feel very resonant for me in my body in terms of what my ancestors knew and did. So the spirituality that I'm talking about is a reclaiming of ourselves and our connection to our heart space, to our bodies which is a revolutionary act for everyone in this white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy that we live in, but especially for Black women and femmes. Um, a reclamation of my body and a reclamation of my connection with myself, with all of us as humans, the interconnectedness of us as humans, and with the universe, with, which is nature. We are made of stardust. That's who we are. That's where we came from. So that to me is absolutely required. And that to me is what spiritual activism is because I don't think the work that we can do out in the world when we're calling ourselves activists, if it's not rooted in this notion, this understanding of our interconnectedness with each other as humans, um, including, like I said at the beginning, like my understanding that your oppression is my oppression and my oppression is your oppression. And it looks very different, again, depending on like what power and privileges we have, but that we are all one, that that is true. And that this is not just about human beings either, right? It's not about human supremacy. Like this is also about us tending to and caring for our planet and all living beings on this planet. And that like my oppression of the tree is also an oppression of me, like to that degree, having that understanding of something bigger than ourselves that isn't like a, a white man. It's not a white Jesus and Jesus wasn't white, but an understanding of it's whatever makes most sense for you. But that to me is a reclamation of, of indigenous knowledge. And in, by indigenous knowledge, I mean indigenous to all lands on this planet. One of the things that I think uh, initially sort of sparked just my my connection with your work when I think we both spoke at, wow, two year, exactly two years ago, International yes. Women's Day at uh, <laughs> how appropriate um, was something that I think really aligns with the ethos of Rebel Unrest, which is one of our projects that we have invited you to, to speak at in the in the past. And it is the the theft of our rest, right? Even not just as folks that that um, identify themselves as activists, but what it looks like to be at rest. And mm. I think one of the things not just the physical rest, which we often conflate with sleep, mm -hmm. but like mm -hmm. our souls and spirits being at rest. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the largest, if we were to put a price tag to one of the largest sort of rings of thefts that have happened across North America, it has been the theft of rest for Black people, Indigenous yes. people. Because we, what is it to be at rest when our, the consistent Twitter feed and Facebook feed, right, is filled with the brutalization and the viralization of our bodies, right? Yes. What does it be at rest when in the midst of a global pandemic, we're having to also contend with these systems that were never built for us, right, and continue to perpetuate that our bodies and our um, are not valued. And 
one of the things I think is really interesting about the connection that you build, not just in your book, but I think in your work innately, is that that right to be at rest, right? That right to be valued for not just our physical labor, but our intellectual capital, right? Mm -hmm. That Megan and I talk about it all the time, particularly in her role when she um, was working as a civil rights attorney, we are constantly being asked to sit on this committee, sit on that board and do mm-hmm. all this free labor. It was like, I'm sorry, that was not in my title when you hired me. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that wasn't mm-hmm. reflected in my check this week or this mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. But because of our lived experience and our expertise, we're being put into these spaces to endure our own traumas and microaggressions and be responsible for the disruption of that trauma and those systems. Mm-hmm. and. One of the things I think is, you know, this paradox that we have seen kind of played out this week, right, is us, the economic parity, right, of Black black voices and Indigenous voices and paying us for the work that we're doing, but then also asking white women to do the work. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if you can share a little bit about that call, which to me is just hits me so hard, um, which is asking you to do the work. Just a long exhale, you know? It's, when I wrote this book, I didn't want to write a book to white white people. I didn't want to write a book to white women. I say that expressly and explicitly in the book because most books are written to white folks. That's the status quo, irrespective of who's the author. You know, this is the white gaze, the white gaze that Toni Morrison talks about all the time. Like we, we write with whiteness in mind, whether we're aware we're doing that or not. And I didn't want to do that, but it became very clear to me very quickly that I had to write a book to white folks and specifically to white women and especially cis white women because they are causing the most harm in my personal and professional experience and you know, many experiences of many other black women and femmes in this space or not. And so that was vital work for me. That was really, really important to make sure that I, you know, was using my tools and gifts in the way that could create the most change. And so that was writing this book to them. And I refused to write a book that wasn't for us and also to us. So in writing to white women, I made sure that this is for Black, Indigenous, and women of color, and, women of color, and especially for Black and Indigenous women and fence. And that fine line is really an important one. So I am speaking to mostly, most specifically speaking to white women because they have the most work to do. And I'll talk about why that is in a second, but I mean, I know you all know (laughs) why that is in a second, but um, they have the most work to do, but we also have our own work to do, right? And even if all white people, like, I don't know, fell off the planet tomorrow, the rest of us would still (laughs) hold that torch of white supremacy towards each other and ourselves. And so it was really important to me that that was also addressed. And pinnacle of the work that we need to do is unplugging from systems of white supremacy. And the, the most important piece of that for me is our healing. Because to unplug from those systems requires a real reckoning for us to really face the way those systems cause us harm, not easy, not an easy thing to face, um, to learn how we have actually been robbed of rest and what rest really is and, and like practice undertaking rest in all of its forms and facets, especially as Black women and femmes, which is not easy. Real rest is incredibly challenging under these systems of oppression that we live in for everyone and really for no one more than Black women and femmes. 
because we are everyone's mule and mammy. So I have been working up to this in my own life for years and years and years, you know, starting with complete and utter burnout from being an attorney, complete and utter burnout from being an attorney with a chronically ill and disabled mother. Mm-hmm. absolute exhaustion on all levels, like bone tired, you know, not like I need a nap. Like, no, I could sleep for six months right. and that wouldn't do it. Cause it's, I also need emotional rest and creative rest and mental rest and social rest and spiritual rest. Like all of these facets of rest that can support us in being able to do the work that's required for our own healing, right? Like the rest is part of the healing, but that's not the healing itself. It's like, there's the healing is work. This is work for everybody. But it's a fine line. It's a fine, nuanced line. And I also talk about this specifically in the book. But as I, my belief is that no one understands these systems of oppression better than those of us who have been oppressed by it. That's the, that's, you know, also an underlying thesis of the standpoint theory, which I talk about in the book. We understand systems of oppression better than those who have not because we have had to survive by it. We have had to learn how to survive. So we understand whiteness better than white people will ever understand it because white people don't even have to think about whiteness. Right. They don't even have to think about it. Whereas we don't have a choice. Again, even whether we're aware of it or not, we don't have a choice. For our own survival, we have to contemplate whiteness and understand it very well to survive, let alone to try and thrive or succeed in some way in this white supremacist world. So so we understand these systems. So for me, we are the ones who need to pave the way. We need to guide the way. We need to cultivate it. We are the choreographers of collective liberation, but Mm. we are not the laborers. We are not the dancers. We know the way forward as much as anyone can. And that's why our input and our, our knowledge and our way showing is so vital and critical. We've been hauling the bags for hundreds of years. We've been doing that work way too long. And so that work is on white people. That work is on white people. And for me in this moment, that work is really on white women, really and truly on white women, because white women continue to be treated as fragile. I think white fragility is, I I rename it in the book, white wildness, because to call it white fragility is to let people off the hook, especially white women. Mm -hmm. It's not fragile, it's violent, it's violent, and it causes harm. And um, we have this total misconstrued belief that white women are somehow not implicated in these systems of white supremacy and harm, and that they're not just as harmful and violent as white men. And that's just not the case. It's just more insidious. And so that to me is really, really crucial that we have a conversation about and that we call those folks in. Um, And the reason they have such a hard time coming into the conversation is because they have a really hard time understanding their status as oppressed oppressors. Black men also have a hard time with this. You Just because you are oppressed and all women are oppressed by patriarchy, right? Just Mm -hmm. because you are oppressed and all Black people are are oppressed by white supremacy and anti-Blackness, just because you are oppressed does not mean that you are not oppressing others. It doesn't. And it does not mean that you don't have work to do. And that, again, is also why this book was so important to me to make sure that I was talking to everybody because we all have work to do. It just looks very different. I'm a cis woman. I'm light skinned. I'm multiracial. I'm queer. I am uh, non-disabled. I'm highly educated. I'm financially secure. I have a lot of identities. And some of those cast me in a position of having more power and privilege. And as a result, I oppress those people who are not in power and privileged positions based on that identity. And I uh, occupy identities that are most oppressed. Both of those things are true. 
Yeah. So I come to this work with a knowledge of the ways in which I am oppressed and really doing the healing work that's required for me to help myself through that. And that requires me to also ensure that I understand the power and the privileges that I do possess and the ways in which that causes harm. White women have a very hard time with that, very hard time. And they, they need to really reckon with that and they need to do better. Yeah, for sure. I think <laughs> I sighed at the after Virginia asked that question because I am truly fatigued on, on uh, you know, white women essentially opting out and opting in whenever they feel like it. And then when they do a lot of times, and of course, you know, people are individuals, I get that. But as, as a group, a lot of times when they do op, opt in, it's like to demand more labor from us and to demand mm-hmm. that we, mm-hmm. you know, educate them and, and do the work that they are essentially uh, refusing to do. And so, you know, I I struggle with that line between, you know, wanting to knowing that I can see what they can't see and I've had to live what they don't live. Um, and so understanding that they don't know what they don't know. But at the same time, like there is accountability. Right. And you anything that we don't know nowadays, most people go, you know, do some legwork to figure it out. And mm-hmm. it just feels like just not white women. <laughs> yeah. It's just like not happening. And then. And then to turn it around as if like they are some sort of victim because I choose at that moment to not let them extract free labor from me. Yeah, is just exhausting on top of like everything else that we're dealing with. And so I I don't I am I'm working on that balance, I guess. I'm working on the balance of of protecting my myself, my intellectual capital, also being aware of where I am in my body and and what's going on mm. in any given moment. And and also feeling the call to racial justice education. It's mm-hmm. it's a tough line that I think yeah. people in our position are are battling a lot. I used to joke with Megan that, you know, having experienced that burnout, particularly in my my time, you know, doing this work on behalf of the university, that it got to the point where it was like if another person emails me with all these lovely languages of skirting around the fact that they're asking me to do their job. Why is it always so long? Right? It's like yeah, no. email, but just, you know, today yes. all they want you to do is do the, the labor. labor. And yeah. I was like, I'm just gonna start saying like you can find the answer here and hyperlink here to Google.com because I was like, we have the same access to this mm-hmm. information, right? Mm-hmm. And it and as Megan says, it starts to build up this this complexity, and sometimes it that that reflects as exhaustion and then also resentment because this is the work you were called to do. You're, you're doing it in these spaces, though, however, that require more than just your labor. They require transformation of those actions. Mm-hmm. And that will require white people specifically to take on and equip themselves, right, with the, uh, with the understanding that um, our collective liberation is also dependent on them not just being passive allies, right, but being mm-hmm. agitators. And that will require inconvenience and discomfort and perhaps even sacrifice of their privilege and their positions. I don't think you can be a passive ally. I'm listening to this conversation. Of course, I'm much older than all of you and have experienced a lot of that. It seems to call into question some cross sections here that I don't know how we work through them. So how is it that do we have the space or the courage or whatever it takes 
to define who we are without a consciousness, you know, Du Bois talks about this double consciousness. To be able to do that, what does that require without necessarily considerations of white women and their role in oppressing us? That's, and I think that that's really where rest comes. And I Mm -hmm. think of the line in Invisible Man where he's in Harlem and he sees this cart with yams on it. And he says, you know, he's struggling with this consciousness of being a black man and being in America and the struggle. And he finally says, I am what I am. And <laughs> is that is that the rest that we have to define without considerations of white women's impingement on that? And how do we is it possible And how do we do it? And what role do our ancestors play so that we are in the business of defining who we are within a context that we define for ourselves? And how Mm -hmm. does it then cause us to interact with white women with that identity that is not intimidated or, or, or even violated by the presence of white women? That's such a beautiful query. So I thank you for it. I think for me, I think it's a both and. I think there's only a certain level of rest and wellness and comfort and liberation and healing that we can acquire when we define it for ourselves outside of considerations of whiteness. And when I say considerations of whiteness, I mean considerations of the systems of oppression of white supremacy that have have been created for us, right? We can only get so far. And so we, and we do that work a lot. And I think that that's how we have survived as black women and femmes. But I also call us forth to do more of that work in the book and otherwise, but I'm very explicit in the book as well, that the reason I wrote this book to white women is I don't believe we can truly be free or liberated or healed until they have done their work so that they dismantle the systems that are causing us so much harm and oppression and ostracization because we didn't create this these systems mm-hmm. so we can't dismantle them we do not have the power and privilege to be able to do that and so it's a it's a scary circle because it does re- require them to do that it does which is not to say that we can't be healed and free and rested and liberated without them. I believe we can, but the degree matters. How free, how liberated, because I talk about this uh, a lot with a friend. We joke, like I just, we're we're both, you know, black queer femmes in this space of racial justice. And I'm like, I just want to be able to lie on the beach and watch dolphins. Right. (laughs) I just want to lie on the beach and watch dolphins. That would be like a liberatory act, but I want to be able to do that in a way that doesn't require like the weight that comes with rest as black women and femmes, knowing that the rest of the world's on fire, knowing that people that look like me are, you know, still lining up in Austin, Texas, Mm -hmm. trying to get water and don't have electricity. Like that's That's not real rest. That's not real rest. And so until the systems that exist dismantle those harms so that my rest can really just be, when I say watch the dolphins, I mean, watch the dolphins. I mean, be there with the dolphins, not 10 parts of me and all the hypervigilance that we know as black women and them, we constantly have to have all the time for our survival and the survival of our community. Like to be able to lay that down cannot happen until white people do the work that is required to dismantle the systems of supremacy that they benefit from and perpetuate and create it, period. Absolutely. It's a dilemma. 
It's a dilemma. Yeah. Virginia. It's a dilemma. Yes. I think we yes. can certainly imagine it, G-Mom. For me, I can't imagine it. But I also know that as long as, you know, we're living, I mean, think about it. Texas governor yesterday lifted all COVID restrictions. When we have, what, less than 5% of people uh, vaccinated and, and, you know, Black and Brown and Indigenous people are dying in large numbers and and he lifted it. And so, you know, there there's always something, there's always another thing compounding everything that we're already dealing with. And so I can imagine it, I can envision it, but it's tough to feel the freedom to to fully exist um, in that rest when there's so much going on, always attacking our humanity. I was just going to say, I mean, that imagination though, I think is, is so important, you know, even in the work that I do with certain organizations, like we're asking for that type of imagination. Mm -hmm. Yes. because we've been in some ways so restricted to even consider what's possible and 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 what what we are owed as human beings mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. as black human beings but as human beings right what what this and not just what this country promised us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what we are promised as you know if we connect as a spiritual being what we are promised as human beings as children of god as people mm-hmm. well in community you know and it, it, i think one of the things that gives me hope right is existing in this time where perhaps we don't even consider like if y'all there's always this image of like what is equity and there's the fence and you know all these folks are able to see over the fence i'm like no 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 fence right mm-hmm. Aren't even able to imagine the like, world Circle. without the fence. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then the other thing that gives me hope, which is what again is I think is such a beautiful through line through your book, Rachel. And again, it's do better spiritual activism for fighting and healing from white supremacy, is bringing our ancestors along in our journey. Right. I think that's the beautiful part of what we're trying to imagine through gen activists is, you know mourning folks like, you know, uh, John Lewis and Ruth Bader, you know, all mm-hmm. in passing, but recognizing like we are literally taking batons and then reimagining those batons and what they mm-hmm. look like. Mm-hmm, Actually, mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful parts of your book to me was your um, acknowledgments and your introduction, which you honor your mother in. And then you say, for my ancestors who so often went unheard with hearts unhealed. And that just like, you know, makes me not just emotional, angry, but then, mm-hmm. right, that that our ancestors, familiar or unfamiliar, we don't have to be related mm-hmm. to our blood, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. living through the work that we're doing, right, that we're paying homage, that we are healing wounds that were never healed, but will be healed in our generation. And so I wonder when you wrote that, were there certain images or names that came to mind to you that you thought of that were a part of that healing or a part of that ancestral tie? Any women, particularly women of color, that that came to mind to you? I was a conduit as I wrote this book, right? So like I wrote this book, but also all my ancestors, mm. familiar or unfamiliar, really spoke loudly to me. And, uh, and I had the privilege, it was a great honor and privilege to be a conduit for them and continue to be, but but very specifically in writing this book and putting pen to paper to to what they had to say. That's why I always say I'm not saying anything new. This this we are but we are living in a time where I'm able to say things that my mother wasn't able to say. Mm-hmm. Let alone. Yeah. 
my ancestors from way back. And so I don't want to take, I don't want to water down that that's a privilege that I possess to be able to, to speak to these things in a way that many of us, it's not that we weren't able, it was, it wasn't sufficiently safe. And, and yet so many of us did anyway, right? So many of us did anyway. But I also expressly dedicate the book to my mom and my uncle. So those were like, you know, ancestors that who are no longer here, either of them. Those are ancestors that were, you know, right at the top of my mind as I wrote. Also my grandmother, my maternal grandmother on my mother's side and my all my grandparents were with me. And Harriet Tubman was all over. I have a, now my new nickname is Tupac Tubman. Like when I'm not here to play with you, Tupac Tubman comes on the scene and she doesn't play. Martin Luther King has always been very close and Malcolm X, very, very close. And always James Baldwin and Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison, like all, you know, Sojourner Truth, who I did a talk about it two years ago on Women's Day where I met Virginia. And all the ones who went unnamed, all the ones we've never heard of or whose names we just don't know. Like the nameless are also, you know, equally as important. Like the amount of just the, the level and degree to which we were forced to survive. And this is very important language to me that I also discuss in the book. Like we didn't have to survive. Right. We were forced to survive. And coming back full circle to this piece around rest as black women and femmes and this like, you know, this myth of our, I was going to say myth of our strength, but it's, it's such a nuanced thing because there isn't a myth of our strength. We are incredibly strong and our strength doesn't mean that we're not human and that we're not deserving of care and that we should be expected to do supernatural <laughs> feats, right? Like that's, that's unfair. That's oppressive just because we're strong doesn't mean that we aren't human or deserving. But I think, I think it's vital that we remember that all of the work that we do is healing across all timelines. So when we do our healing work, we get to heal past, present and future. Like when I'm doing this healing work for me, I'm not just doing this work for me. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it for my ancestors and I'm doing it for my future ancestors. That piece is really important. And also continuing to be connected to those who came before us because I couldn't do the work I do now without those who came before me to be able to create a world where I'm able to write this book and make a living talking to about white supremacy, you know, like that's not a world I could have even imagined as a young girl. I think that that's partly where our rest or our healing is. It's in our ancestors. I'm trying to write about my mother's life. And one of the opening sentences in it is that as I'm doing my work, or moving about the world. These are these flashes of memories of time with my mother or stories that she told or the struggle on our behalf that she and her mother before her. I find some rest in that, in the healing, knowing that that's who I am. And and when I have those flashes of memories, it's as if I'm strengthened to go mm -hmm. on in the journey and that they modeled for me in many ways how you because they found rest even in the middle of that. When my mm -hmm. mother tells stories for me and we laughed and laughed at things that happened with her in the middle of that and she of her mother, they were giving they're giving us rest mm -hmm. in those memories that we have. And as you talked about the humor 
the joy that they had. When I write about my mother born in 1914 and mm. lynching in Georgia and all of the oppression and all, but even in the middle of all that, there are these beautiful stories of how she and her brother were mischief makers and the kinds <laughs> of things that they did. Uh, and yet their mother at 40 something, the two of them and not there are 10 of them all together. It's a co very complex, but the point being is that she could still be mother and give her children rest when they did mischievous things and, and she hugged them in spite of it or she loved them in spite. I find rest in that even as I deal with my own children and confidence in who I am. And so I, I don't know. I want to make sure I'm because your work is fascinating, and I promise I'm going to read this book now. <laughs> talk with you. I'm eager to read it. But I think also when we talk about our white sisters, they have their work to do. And I don't think it's our job to to necessarily help them. But there's something. I agree. I agree. But there's something in being who we are and being mm -hmm. confident who we are that is instructive to white women. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's part of claiming ourselves. Yes. And through that, some redemption can come from there. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right there with you. You came yes. right all the snaps. It's like, yeah. well, this has been um, wonderful, Rachel. I am so excited for your book to be out in the world. Um, I in reading it, I had so many moments of just feeling affirmed and also just reminded to reconnect with my body. And especially through like these last like two, three weeks in Texas in particular, it's been really, really hard. And so the lessons that I've learned from your book, I have actually implemented. And so I am just very, very grateful um, for your time and for your work and for the way that you approach this work with intentionality um, and with a focus on on healing and, and for us and you challenge us all. And so, so. Mm, I love that. Thank you. I love that. One thing I wanted to share is for the folks who do read the book, there's a link at the back at the end of the book for more calls to action. And one of the calls to action that is available at the end of the book is for Black women and femmes to join a webinar series, a collective called Reclaiming Our Birthright, which is about our healing and about our rest. And we are raising funds. So all non-Black folks pull up and Black folks with abundance pull up. And anyone, you don't have to read the book, you can head to my webpage and support us in raising funds because we are paying every single Black woman and femme who joins us because you should be paid to be able to undertake in the healing that is required, that we're forced to do because of systems that were above our control, because of systems of oppression. So yeah, it's called Reclaiming Our Birthright. It's a three-month collective for Black women and femme specifically for our liberation and our healing. And again, if you read the book, there's a link at the end. So there's call to action for folks to support that and there's call to action for black women and femmes to be able to apply for that and we also have um, sponsored books for black and indigenous folks so if you want a copy of the book and it's not financially available to you you have copies available and if you want to sponsor books please do we have a long list of folks who want books and we're giving away hardcovers and audiobooks i shouldn't say giving away we are purchasing from black owned bookstores audiobooks and hardcovers for black and indigenous folks to be able to access this work again for our living our healing and our living.
collaboration. So thank you for letting me do that little plug. And thank y'all for having <laughs> me so much. What an honor. That's thank you. Amazing. I'm honored to. We will, we will put all of that on our website. And again, if you don't have the book and you're going to go get the book, it is by Rachel Ricketts. It's Do Better, Spiritual Activism for Fighting and Healing from White Supremacy. And please try to purchase from a Black-owned bookstore. Check out these words of wisdom from Gmom. We talk about rest. Here is what I'm offering. So during the civil rights movement, there was an older woman who was marching with them. And they said, sister, so-and-so, you shouldn't be out here. You're too old to be marching. And she said, honey, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. So... Mm. I love that. Thank you. I love that.